Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Clash of Two Kingdoms, Pilate the Prefect and Christ the King, and is based upon the lecture readings for Sunday, November 26, 2006. With America's midterm elections in the rearview mirror, and the political tables turned, Republicans licking their wounds and Democrats thumping their chests, how fitting that the lectionary this week features Christ the King and the most political, the most dramatic political flashpoint in all of Scripture, Pontius Pilate's interrogation of Jesus in the Praetorium, his threefold declaration that he found him innocent, then his death sentence verdict to pacify the mob mock the Jews, and protect his job. John's Gospel makes it clear that the Passion narrative in general, and the trial before Pilate in particular, was a specifically political rather than religious crisis. Jesus' trial and Roman execution epitomized a clash between two kings and two kingdoms, and the allegiance that they solicit from us. In the year 26 AD, the Roman Emperor Tiberius appointed Pilate the prefectus or governor over Judea. He ruled with an iron fist over every aspect of the province, the military, the courts, the economy, and even the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, pilfering its funds to build an aqueduct. The Jewish historian Philo of Alexandria paints a dark picture of a ruthless overlord. Quote, by nature rigid and stubbornly harsh, of spiteful disposition and an exceeding wrathful man. The bribes, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment, the constant murders without trial, the ceaseless and most grievous brutality." End quote. Although some people questioned whether Pilate was even a historical figure, in 1961, archaeologists discovered a block of granite at a theater in Caesarea containing four lines of Latin, which read, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. The inscription was part of a building dedication that Pilate had made to Tiberius. About four years after he sentenced Jesus to death, according to the 4th century church father Eusebius, Pilate, quote, wearied with misfortunes, end quote, committed suicide. Thus, the paradox is not lost on the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who writes, quote, one of, of, one of the many historical ironies of the Christian message is that of all the famous ancient Romans, Julius Caesar or Cicero or Virgil, none has achieved even nearly the universal name recognition of an otherwise obscure provincial ruler named Pontius Pilate, who has the distinction which he shares with, of all people, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and with no other human creature, of having his name recited every day all over the world in the Nicene Creed, as well as in the Apostles' Creed, crucified on our behalf under Pontius Pilate." End quote. 
More importantly, Pelican also notes that just as pagans accused the earliest followers of Jesus of cannibalism because of their Eucharistic practices, they also accused them of sedition because of the overt political implications of their confession of a quote-unquote kingdom of God with a citizenship in heaven. Philippians 3 verse 20. The birth of Jesus signaled that God, quote, would bring down rulers from their thrones, end quote, Luke 1.52. In Mark's gospel, the very first words that Jesus spoke announced that the kingdom of God has come, Mark 1.15. And then in this week, John's gospel takes us to the death of Jesus, and the political theme is the same. Jesus was dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons all of which are political. We read in Luke 23, 1 and 2, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In the passage in John chapter 18, beginning with verse 28, Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium, then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, replied Jesus. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I'm a king. Pilate went back inside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns, befitting a man whom he miscalculated was a political poser. Hail, O King of the Jews! Back outside, the mob hounded him. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying his boss, the emperor. And so he caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. When Pilate had Jesus crucified, he insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross, written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek, that he knew would, they would find repugnant, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course, saying, don't write the King of the Jews, but instead that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. But it was too late. What I have written, I have written, said Pilate. And to be sure, with that mockery of the Jews, he wrote much more than he ever could have known or even imagined. Charges of political sedition dogged the first Christians 20 years later. In Philippi, a mob dragged Paul and Silas before the city magistrates, then had them stripped, beaten, severely flogged, and imprisoned. We read in Acts chapter 16, 20 to 21, these men are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And then a chapter later in Thessalonica we read, 
Some bad characters from the marketplace dragged Jason and some fellow believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When Jesus insisted that his kingdom was not of this world, he did not mean that it was merely spiritual or relegated to a future age beyond history or in heaven. Far from it, as his detractors rightly surmised. In the dialogue above in John's Gospel, we see how Jesus' enemies rightly concluded that if Jesus was a king, a lord, a ruler, he clearly intended to usurp and upstage Caesar as lord. Their two kingdoms clashed. In its simplest terms, the kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. Imagine, for example, if God ruled the nations and not Tony Blair, George Bush, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-il, or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Every aspect of personal and communal life would experience a radical reversal. The political, economic, and social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of warmongering. Liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy, not vengeance. Care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful generosity instead of greed, and on and on. The Hebrews of old had a marvelous word for this, shalom, or human well-being. In apocalyptic dreams and visions, this week's Old Testament reading from the book of Daniel traces the rise and fall of the greatest political kingdoms in human history, Babylon, Persia under the Cyrus the Great, Greece under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. But above and beyond them all, Daniel foretells of a king and a kingdom that is not ethnically, spatially, or temporally limited. It is what he calls, quote, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and will never be destroyed, end quote rather than an ethnocentric kingdom limited to one land and one people this kingdom according to the reading from revelation for this week invites all peoples nations and men of every language to worship the true ruler of the kings of the earth daniel 7 14 to 15 and revelation chapter 1 verse 5 the lord's prayer then just might be the most subversive of all political acts. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. People who live and pray this way have a very different agenda than Caesar's, whether Republican or Democrat, capitalist, socialist or communist, whether democratic or theocratic, for they have entered a kingdom pledged allegiance to a ruler, and submitted to the reign of Christ the King.
And now for further reflection. How do you explain Christianity's embrace of political power through the ages? Number two, in what sense can prayer be political or subversive? Number three, what did Jesus mean when he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? Number four, what did Paul mean when he told believers to submit to the governing authorities? Remember that Paul lived under Nero. Number five, consider the words from Peter's epistle. Fear God, honor the king. And then finally, for further reflection, I recommend the book by John Howard Yoder, The Politics of Jesus, from the year 1994. For books this week, I review Christopher Tyerman, God's War, A New History of the Crusades, Cambridge, Harvard University Press, 2006, 1,024 pages. Magisterial in scope, meticulous in detail, cautious in its conclusions, breathtaking in its bibliographic command of the original sources, and sparkling with literary style, the Oxford historian Christopher Tyreman has written what many medieval specialists have hailed as the single best book on the Crusades, one that's sure to supplant, if not surpass, Stephen Runciman's three-volume work called A History of the Crusades that was published in 1951 to 1954. In short, Tyreman has produced the new gold standard on the subject. Along the way, he debunks numerous glorious misconceptions, as he calls them, both scholarly and popular about these iconic events of history where, like no others, the past is captured in abiding cultural myths of inheritance, self-image, and destiny. Tyerman cautions against two common responses to our historical past. One is what he calls condescending historical snobbery. In other words, to caricature the past as different from the present, and to dismiss our forebears as less sophisticated, more cruel, more credulous, and more hypocritical than we are today. 200 million deaths to war in the last century belie that error. A second mistake is to use the past as a mirror to the present, as if the atrocities of the Crusades presage today's massacres. Tyreman doesn't exonerate Christendom from its sanctification of slaughter by any means. But he reminds us that Christians did no more than what many religions have done when they demonized its enemies, taxed its citizens to kill them, redrew maps to conquer and dominate sacred space, and even allowed those whom they conquered to live in peaceful coexistence under their new rule. Until the time of Constantine, many Christians rejected the notion of war. Tyreman traces the subsequent changing attitudes from reluctance to accommodation to what he calls a gospel of indiscriminate hate, and finally to the irreconcilable paradox where followers of the Prince of Peace who taught the Sermon on the Mount unleashed a fury of carefully orchestrated butchery, barbarism, and bigotry. The scale, scope, and complexities of the Crusades are almost unimaginable. 
the recruitment, military logistics, preaching tours, propaganda campaigns, technologies of warfare, sophisticated financing, seafaring, international trade, treaty making, and so on. For 500 years, from Urban II's preaching campaigns in 1095 to 1096, to the last crusader pope, Pius II, in the 15th century, from Greenland to Iberia and from England to Iraq, the church not only justified organized violence, but sacralized it and declared it meritorious. Nordic pagans, European Jews, Muslims in Spain and the Middle East, and even fellow Christians in Constantinople or France were all exterminated at various times. When the slaughters ended, Tyreman shows how the crusader mentality had even permeated public consciousness so broadly and deeply that it expressed itself in literature, liturgy, art, architecture, and even in the wills that left inheritances to fund future crusades. External manifestations of the Crusades, writes Tyreman, can be observed, yet the internal personal decision to follow the cross, to inflict harm on others at great personal risk, at the cost of enormous privations, at the service of a consuming cause, cannot be explained, excused, or dismissed, either as virtue or sin. Rather, its very contradictions spelt its humanity." End quote. For a shorter and more popular version of this same material, see Christopher Tyreman's book, Fighting for Christendom, Holy War and the Crusades, Oxford, 2004, 264 pages. For film this week, I review Art School Confidential from the year 2006. The main character, Jerome, graduates from high school and enrolls in Strathmore Art School. Picasso is his hero, and he intends to become what he calls, quote, the greatest artist of the 21st century, end quote. Lucky for him, Bardo, who was flunked out and started art school over three times, takes him under his wing and disabuses him of his innocence. He's pegged every pretension of every classmate, and thus the side-splitting parodies begin. Here's the beautiful beatnik, he tells Jerome. Over there's the vegan holy man. Over there, the angry lesbian, the boring blowhard, the brown noser, the fifty-ish mom trying to find herself. Oh, wow, exclaims Bardo, another ironic pop culture reference. The professors with their inflated egos and deep insecurities are even funnier, as are the classroom dramas when students critique each other's work and pontificate about good art. Unfortunately, into this satire, the directors insert what they hope is a real plot. When Jerome falls in love with the nude model Audrey, is upstaged by the Hulk Jonah, who's at Strathmore for reasons other than art, and then concocts a plan to win her back. He concludes, I'm a living cliché, just like the others. Art School Confidential 
And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem entitled On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the Word. On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 26, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.